When somebody tried to witness to me and get me to accept Jesus, my immediate response was, I'm Jewish and we don't believe in Jesus. It was a knee-jerk response from my upbringing and that person apologized to me. And what they were doing, in fact, was reinforcing that as a Jew, Jesus wasn't for me. Well, welcome back to another episode of A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your host, Ezra Benjamin. And I'm Carly Verna. And we are a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus, and we believe there's value in looking at history as well as today's world and current events through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. And today we're starting what we can call as a two-part mini-series, Carly, with uh, the testimony of my rabbi growing up when I was a little boy uh, misbehaving in Shabbat school and uh, a longtime friend of myself and my family, and more recently, both your and my uh, boss and the CEO and president of Jewish Voice Ministries International here in Phoenix, Arizona, where we record our podcasts, Jonathan Burness. Welcome to the program, Jonathan. Thank you, Ezra. Hi, Carly. Good to be with you both. You know, Ezra and I both know a lot about your testimony, but I think there's some things we're going to uncover that our audience may or may not have heard. And like Ezra said, this is the beginning of a two-part series. So let's start with the basics, Jonathan. Where did you grow up? Well, I, like Ezra, I grew up in, in upstate New York in Rochester, which used to be uh, well-known for two companies, Xerox and Kodak, both of which have tanked pretty much. They took up a good part of the city, and they're both all but gone now, sadly. But uh, it, it was a great place to grow up, and... Uh, I, I miss it from time to time until I actually go back and experience a, a few days of winter. And then I run back to Phoenix and I'm happy I'm here. So from a, from a faith perspective, obviously you grew up Jewish, but what was your experience like, you know, growing up in that religion as a child or young person? Well, it was a very typical Jewish upbringing. And when I say typical in my generation, there weren't many Jews that were secular. Jewish life was centered around the the synagogue, or our our synagogue was called a temple because it was Reform Judaism. Just very simply, in, in my generation, there were four branches of Judaism: either Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, and then there was something called Reconstructionist that wasn't very large. But Reform was liberal Judaism, but nevertheless, uh, still a Judaism that was rooted in congregational life. It was expected of me to go to to services. We did as a family, certainly on the important holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. We celebrated uh, as a family the other Jewish uh, holidays like Passover uh, and Hanukkah. I was It was expected of me to go to Hebrew school from the time that I was at uh, 10 years old to prepare for my bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah is the rite of passage at age 13 into Jewish life. Uh, You read from the Torah and you prepare for a number of years. Uh, The the thing that I I tell people that's sad is I learned to to read and speak Hebrew, but I never learned to, to, to actually interpret what I was saying. So I can read in Hebrew from the Torah, from the scriptures, but I can't translate it. And I never learned modern Hebrew, which is sad because that would have been very practical. I I probably learned more about what Jews don't believe than what we do believe. What I mean by that is that I was taught from a very early age that uh, we Jews don't believe in Jesus. Jesus was really kind of a non-issue for me. He was the representative of another religion. Uh, It was really what I call an us and them mentality. We were Jews and the rest of the world were Gentiles or Christians. They were synonymous. There weren't Catholics, there weren't Protestants. It was just us and them, Jews and Christians, Jews and Gentiles. We had uh, our religious leaders, rabbis, they had priests. The, the Christians had priests and pastors and the Pope. We had our holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Passover, and so on. And Christians had their holidays, Christmas and, and uh, Easter and Lent. Uh, that that was the the worldview that I grew up with, and it was just two 
separate religions. We had our God, the God of Israel, and Christians had their God, Jesus Christ. I, I like to joke that it, but it's true. I, I, I understood he was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ, and I thought he was Catholic and grew up in the Vatican and somehow became God. I didn't understand any of that. It was convoluted for me, but there was this, this very strong sense of Jewish identity. I was born a Jew. I would die a Jew. And uh, that was important. Belief in God wasn't so important. I learned about Moses and Abraham and the patriarchs of our faith and great stories of our heritage, but not about who God was and how to have a relationship with him. I guess he was some distant force that had spoken to uh, great men and women that had been the foundation for the Jewish people, but now had left the scene. So that was my understanding. I didn't really have an active faith in God uh, or any kind of a relationship with him, but a strong sense of Jewish identity. So do you feel like, um, you know, as a teenager and growing up, your Jewish faith was important to you? Or was it more just like this was your Jewish culture? I think more this was my Jewish culture. I, I, the fact is that my parents' mission, and, and it, it was required of me to go through bar mitzvah to go to Hebrew school twice, twice a week. Uh, so I was compelled to do it. I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't a great student, uh, but I did make it through my bar mitzvah and felt like I had discharged my responsibility. And then it was reduced to a very nominal faith and going to services probably twice a year. And that's what I did all the way through or, or into my second year of college. Uh, I took my grandmother. I went to the University of Buffalo and my grandmother lived in Buffalo. So it was my duty to take her to services. But I never really thought about it other than I, I'm Jewish. That doesn't mean much, but that's that's who I am. There was no strong uh, connection to that. Makes sense. So like you just mentioned your college experience. Tell us a little bit about that. And I'm going to ask specifically about something that I learned about your story uh, earlier last year, which was your experience with the Grateful Dead and how that played into your faith journey. That didn't come out till recently, did it? I, I haven't talked about that for a long time until yeah. that interview together in New York. Yep. But yeah, I got involved in, I, I was in sports in high school, just very typical average student, played football, wrestled, and then started to uh, smoke marijuana but I wasn't really a druggie. And then I went off to college and college in my generation, in my era was a, really an exploratory time. And everyone was doing drugs and just partying and enjoying life. And I got, I got caught up in that. My roommate, one of my roommates was an uh, avid Grateful Dead fan which it was very weird experience because I remember walking to the dorm room and there was a skeleton hanging on the door, like a, a, a cardboard skeleton. And I thought, what, what is this about? And this strange music that I, I really disliked in the beginning was playing was Grateful Dead music. And uh, as a result of, of that whole college experience, I got caught up in, uh, the, the, in drugs, in, um, the occult, uh, in cults. I got involved in Hare Krishna for a while. Uh, but the Grateful Dead was the thing. The Grateful Dead and uh, drugs became the, the kind of the dominant focus for uh, almost two years in college. Studying was really sort of a sideline. I, I, I got by. I managed to get by and cram for tests but it was really this counterculture experience and it was a wild adventure to say that it was this horrible thing would be a lie. It was a lot of fun. And uh, it's interesting. So many of the people that were part of that, that whole culture, the grateful dead culture were Jewish uh, because it was really a mind expanding experience. So it wasn't just the music, but the combination of the drugs and the music just pulled me into that culture. And so Jonathan, you, had understood Jesus, the concept, the person of Jesus to be kind of the God of the Christians, as you said, 
But at some point during this college season, people started to tell you, no, Jesus might be for you. And that must have been a paradigm shift. Talk about that, your first experiences with uh, meeting Christians who wanted to tell you about Jesus, and then ultimately your experience encountering the gospel itself. Ezra, I was just thinking about this the other day because the my story goes back further than that. I, I heard the gospel much earlier. Uh, my first encounter with the gospel that I can remember was a wrestling coach who was involved with a group called Young Life. And he was a great guy, a guy named David, and uh, he just was always happy. He was always smiling. And I knew there was something different about him because he was so joyful. He had such a sense of peace. And he, he just, I think what really caught my attention uh, was that he knew why he was here. He had a real sense of purpose and destiny. And that was always important to me. I always, from the time that I was maybe six and my grandfather died suddenly, I remember asking the question to myself, what, what happens after you die? And also, what am I here for? What's my purpose in this life? Those were two driving questions. And Ezra, I think those are two questions that everyone has to deal with in their lifetime. Why am I here? And what's going to happen to me after I die? Those are the two predominant questions of, of life. At least they were for me from the time I was very young. And he knew he knew why he was here. He was a born-again Christian, which I wasn't interested in, but he was just a really nice guy. And through him, I got involved in Young Life and went to a couple of their camps, heard many uh, gospel messages. I remember being impressed with one message about Jesus and how he walked on water and healed the sick and raised the dead. And I thought, they have a really cool God, very personable. I really like the God of the Christians. But when somebody tried to witness to me and get me to accept Jesus, my immediate response, although I didn't think about the importance of being Jewish, was I'm Jewish and we don't believe in Jesus. It was a knee-jerk response from my upbringing. And that person apologized to me. And what they were doing, in fact, was reinforcing that as a Jew, Jesus wasn't for me. Sad. Right. It is sad. And I think, you know, Jonathan, a lot of our audience come from a Christian background, not Jewish. And they may have Jewish friends, uh, fellow university students, whatever. And they may have a similar story on the other side of the fence, right? Everything was going well in my friendship with this Jewish person until I brought up Jesus. And then things inexplicably became hostile or standoffish. Right. Speak a little bit, if you could, to uh, our Christian listener who's thinking, why is this such a knee-jerk issue to a Jewish person? I thought I had a good friendship with this person. I brought up Jesus and my Jewish friend distanced themselves from me. Did I do something wrong? Did I offend them? Uh, did I not present it in the right way? And maybe they're confused about it. Sure. That, that's a good question. I think that Judaism, again, is defined more by this firm belief that Jesus is not for us. So a Jew, a Jew, Ezra, can believe in everything or nothing. There's atheists, good Jews that are atheists, fully accepted. There's uh, congregations now of homosexual Jews. That's all acceptable, even though it's forbidden in, in Torah, because it's not about what the Bible teaches. It's about the, the, the one idea that the rabbis have stood firm on, that we are Jews. We're born Jews. We'll die Jews. And conversion to, to leave the Jewish faith is to accept any other faith. And the predominant line that's drawn in the sand is Jesus. We don't believe in Jesus. In fact, uh, there's Jewish community centers uh, that will hold classes in yoga. That's all okay. And Taoism and Buddhism, all that. There's an openness to all of those philosophies, but the line is drawn with not believing in Jesus. So Jewish identity, again, defined by who we don't believe, and it's Jesus. So for Jewish people who are really enculturated 
in this idea of Jewish survival, that the Jew, we must survive as Jewish people, Jesus becomes the greatest threat, right? Christians, Christianity becomes the greatest threat. You have to understand also there's a 2,000-year history, a very sad history of anti-Semitism and Jews put to death for being Jewish or converted to Christianity at the, at the tip of the sword, you know, accept Jesus or die. So that's all mixed into this emotion. So when you look at the, at the uh, Crusades and the pogroms and the Holocaust, uh, Jesus becomes the, the, the perpetrator of that for some. And so that's why there'd be some anger. I think we're finding less of that as the Jewish community becomes more secularized. But you may have experienced that, this hostility, and it's because Jesus is identified as the one that's responsible for those horrible atrocities throughout history. It's not him, though. That's, but his followers, those who claim to be his followers, force Jews to become Christians or put them to death. So, Right. And you as a young adult have all of that. I don't know if we can call it baggage. We can call it context, right? Predominantly negative context uh, related to Jesus. And you said you're going to the camps. Wow, the Christians have a great God. But Jonathan, talk about when you started to have to deal with the possibility that maybe Jesus isn't for the Christians, maybe he's for me. So I didn't have that hostility. I just simply was parroting back what I had been taught. Jesus isn't for me. But it was also an an escape for me because I, I knew that believing in Jesus meant going in a direction that I didn't want to go in, not as a Jew, just as somebody who wanted to have a good time and call the shots and I had my own destiny. I, I wanted to be a successful businessman. And for me, Christianity meant this life of, of uh, celibacy and poverty. And I just connected it with being a priest or something. And so I intuitively knew that this was would, would, would change the course of my life. I knew that just probably from all of those meetings at Young Life. And then another thing that I want to quickly throw in is that uh, I had a summer job, and this was just what I was thinking about the other day, uh, working for a circuit board company. And I worked for the maintenance, the guy who headed up maintenance. And he was a devout Christian who played Christian radio all day. And so I I just was fed all of this Christian radio day after day for, for three months. And that also uh, got in got into my heart. The Bible says that the word of God doesn't return void and that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So all those things were really in my heart. So I just wanted to, to, to set the context for that. And then I go to college and really I'm searching. I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm exploring. I'm, I'm parting. But really I'm, I was searching for the greater reality. What, there must be something more. I, I believe that again, this pursuit of why am I here? What's my destiny? What's my purpose? I, w- I was driven by that. And really with all the drug use and all of the different uh, uh, explorations in Hare Krishna and Grateful Dead and so on, I was really searching for the meaning of life. And the, the big confrontation came with a uh, a friend who I had done a lot of drugs with, uh, who was really uh, on her way out of school. She had got so involved in drugs that she was no longer going to classes. I saw her uh, her health fade away with the drug use, and I lost contact with her. And I thought she'd end up dead, but I bumped into her on campus, and she looked amazing after a number of months that we hadn't had contact and she had gone, she had had a born again experience. In fact, she was at such a low point, it turns out she was ready to take her own life. And she wandered into a, a pool hall. And the owner of the pool hall had just months before had an experience with the Lord and led her to faith. And she now told me how her life had completely changed. And I thought, that's great for you. Her name was Susie. I said, that's great for you, but it's not for me. I didn't even think about the Jewish thing. I just said, it's not for me. I'm just very happy for you. But I couldn't deny that, that 
that something had profoundly changed in her life and I could see it. And she began to call me every day and witness to me. And I remember uh, thinking when the phone, just back to those times, the phone would ring and I'd be waiting for it to ring. And I would, I, I was resolute. I'm not going to answer the phone today. I don't want to talk to her anymore about this. I don't want to talk about why I'm here. I don't want to talk about what happens if I die or get hit by a car, where I'm going. I, I don't want to deal with this, but I would end up talking to her for hours. And finally, uh, she invited me to a Bible study a few weeks later, and I wanted to say no, but out of my mouth came yes. And I ended up going to that Bible study. Now, looking back, I would say this. I believe in free will, but I believe that God stacks the deck. There were people praying for me, and something was changing inside of me without me even, even knowing it. So Ezra, this wasn't a, a pursuit of deep study and an intellectual decision. This was a heart thing. And I think at its core, faith in God is a heart thing. It's not a mind thing. It's a heart thing. And my heart was being changed as I discussed this with her, all of these things that had been planted through Young Life, through Christian radio, were all coming out now and being stirred up. And there was this sense, she has found the truth. When I went to that Bible study, I completely disengaged. I don't even remember the study. It was something on the book of Revelation. I felt out of place. I wanted to get out of the study. But at the end, I was confronted by the, the teacher of the Bible study, the host. And he put a Bible into my hands and began to take me through scriptures like all have sinned and come short of glo the glory of God. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And he, he really put pressure on me to pray with him. And I remember this battle, this intense battle, because on the one side, it was like the angel and the, and the, and the demon sitting on separate shoulders. And that's what it felt like. Get out of here. And the other voice, this is true. This is right. And I prayed a prayer really to appease him because I felt this such pressure. Uh, and then I went home and tried to forget it. But something changed inside of me that night. The Bible says in Romans, if we believe in our heart, and I, my mind said, no, this, forget all this. My heart said, this is true. It's something in my heart. The seeds had been planted. And when I prayed that prayer, if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Yeshua is Lord, Jesus is Lord, we shall be saved. And something changed that night back in May of 1980, the second Saturday in May of 1980. And uh, I didn't even know it, but something changed that night. Wow. What an incredible testimony. And Jonathan, when, you're, when you were praying that prayer, did you understand at that point I'm receiving Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, like the one who was promised to our people? Or did you think I'm, I'm somehow praying to receive the God or the Savior of the Christians? What was your, if you can kind of rewind 40 years, what was your thinking at this point as you're, as you're accepting Jesus as your Savior? Honestly, Ezra, my thinking was, I'll just repeat whatever this guy says so I can get out of here, go home and forget about this because this isn't for me. And I, I did. I, I Actually, I'll tell you, I'll just throw in this. This God has such a sense of humor. I went to the Bible study by motorcycle. I had a motorcycle and it was pouring rain. And I still went to the Bible study, this Bible study that I didn't really want to go to. Again, God stacks the deck, even though I believe in free will. When I got to the study, I was soaking wet. My clothes were soaked. And they gave me a change of clothes uh, and put my clothes in the dryer. That probably is what kept me at the study or I might have got up and left. I, I was a captive audience. I had to stay because I was in borrowed clothes. And only after this presentation and this pressure to pray and repeat this prayer were my clothes given back to me. So my thought was, I'll pray this prayer so I can get my clothes back get home. And that's, that, that's all I was thinking. And I, I went home to be honest, and I smoked a joint and said, this isn't for me. Forget about it. Okay. 
That's just the honest truth. I'd like to give you a different answer, but that's no, no, that's true. that's good. And I imagine you know one or more in our listening audience can relate that their actual salvation prayer may not have been when they felt like their life was transformed, but something changes. So talk to us about that. At what point did you realize I'm not going to shake this? Something has changed in me. Yeah, I don't know how long after that Bible study it had. It probably just days. It was just days. I felt different. And the the most profound change was this insatiable urge, hunger to read the Bible. Where did that come from? I had never read the Bible. Now, we Jews are called the people of the book, but the only Bible portion that I had ever studied was the, in preparation for my bar mitzvah. So I knew about Ephraim and Menashe because it was my portion. And I knew about the stories, but I wasn't a Bible reader. I wasn't an Orthodox Jew. I never had any interest in the Bible, reading the Bible. Uh, my young life friend, the wrestling coach, had given me a copy of the Bible, a paraphrased version, said, someday you may need this. But I threw it into a box somewhere in my parents' house and thanked him, but I never read it. But not So this was the, 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 the biggest change that I remember was uh, I have to read the Bible. And and Ezra, this was a real dilemma because I didn't even know where to find a Bible. That's how ignorant I was. I didn't know you could go into a, a, a bookstore it, that it was the mo- best-selling book of all time. I, and I wanted to read the New Testament in particular. I couldn't go to the rabbi because I, I, I knew I wasn't going to get a New Testament, find a New Testament in the, in the temple, in the synagogue. I couldn't go to any of my friends. They were all druggies, drug dealers or drug users. They didn't have Bibles hanging around. And then I remembered my this this wrestling coach who had given me a Bible in high school. And this is how uh, incredible uh, that this transformation was. I got on my motorcycle, and it's it's now remember it's upstate New York. It's it's March. It's cold. And I'm driving to Rochester from Buffalo. This is about a 60, 80 mile trek just to get that Bible. I run into my parents' house. I don't even say hello. I I run up to my room. I tear through every box until I found that Bible that he had given me years earlier, probably four years earlier, five years before. Left, ran out of the house without even saying goodbye to my parents, got on my motorcycle, drove back to my dorm in Buffalo, another 80 miles, ran into my dorm room and just began to read the Bible, starting in the book of Matthew. And I just devoured it. And that's where everything really changed. And this is, you know, uh, for our audience, listen closely here. Jonathan, I love this part of your story. You open to Matthew 1 wondering if somehow you've now converted to Christianity because of Jesus. And what did you find? Well, I found initially what I expected and what I had braced for, the gospel of of Jesus Christ, you know, the God of the Christians. I, I, I was prepared for that. And this was kind of enemy territory. I was feeling uncomfortable. And then I read the, the in the genealogy, that he was the son of Abraham, the son of David. And that totally shocked me. It was like out of left field. I, I, I couldn't believe that, I, that Abraham and David were in the Bible of the Christians. See, I was taught that the, the New Testament was the Christian Bible, that they believed in ours, the Old Testament. We didn't call it the Old Testament. We called it the, the, the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. But Abraham and David were the two great, two of the greatest men of faith along with Moses in the history of Israel. And here they were in the Christian Bible. What were they doing there? Uh, so that that was a total shock to me. I, I, I couldn't understand what they were doing there. And I, I even theorized, maybe there's a Jewish Abraham and a Christian Abraham and a Jewish David and a Christian David. And then I realized, no, they're the these are the patriarchs of our faith. And Jesus, Yeshua, is a descendant of Abraham and David. And then as I read on Ezra, I discovered that Jesus was Jewish, that he was born of Jewish parents. He wasn't 
brought up in the Vatican in Rome. He was brought up in the land of our forefathers, the land of Israel. I discovered that his followers were all Jews who never converted to Christianity, but had found the promised Messiah of Israel. These were profound discoveries for me. Now, people that are listening may be laughing or or shocked about this. How could that be? But they were profound discoveries because I was taught something so different. And for our audience, listen closely here, because Jonathan, at this point, you're in your early 20s, give or take, right? As a, as a new new 20. believer. I was 20. 20. Okay. Yeah. So a 20-year-old Jewish young man has no context that Jesus actually was born Jewish, that he was the fulfillment of a lineage of what was promised through uh, Moses and through the prophets. For, for our Christian audience listening, just take that in as you're thinking about how you're relating to Jewish friends, extended family, people who go to school with you, people who work alongside you. Jonathan, you were brought up in the Jewish faith, and there was zero context for the overlap that, in fact, Jesus was Jewish and is Jewish. Sure. Jesus, again, Jesus was the God of another religion. He had found another religion. Uh, it might have been it might have been mentioned that he was a, initially a Jew at, at some point, but th- that if it was, it's not something that caught my attention. He was the he was the god of another religion. Uh, a friend of mine found out that Jesus was Jewish by reading Ripley's "Believe It or Not." Believe it or not, that's true. He he, he Ripley's "Believe It or Not" that Jesus was Jewish. No, that was not a concept for Jewish people. And now there's been a, a reclaiming of Jesus as the Jew in in more recent years. Jesus was simply the one that you didn't believe, or you were no longer Jewish. And uh, those were all profound discoveries. One of the scriptures that just was so profound to me was Matthew chapter one, I think it's verse 21, where it says, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in the Bible that my friend had given me, there was a little asterisk. And when I followed it to the middle, it said, Hebrew Yeshua, salvation. That was an incredible discovery that his name, given name, wasn't Jesus. It was Yeshua. It was a Hebrew name, Yeshua, which means salvation. And that brought the whole verse to meaning. You'll call his name Yeshua, salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. Ezra also came to realize that Jesus was sent. His earthly mission was not to the Gentiles. Is now he came for everyone, but his ministry on the earth was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It was to me. That again was a profound, life-changing discovery. And that's that's where things really began to change in my life. As I discovered I haven't converted to another religion. This Jesus is really Yeshua. Uh who came to save his people from their sins, and I'm one of them, and my sins have been forgiven. And I I truly have had a sense from that point on that I had a destiny to serve God. Now, I didn't know that it was to abandon my pursuit of, of business and every all my other goals that I had, but I knew that I, I my life had radically changed. Right. And Carly's going to fast forward us a few years down your faith journey in just a moment. But before we do that, uh, so you, you've now, you know, you've received Jesus, but now you realized you actually encountered Yeshua, who was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the promised Messiah of Israel. And I'm sure you were excited to share family, share with family and friends. Tell us about that. Was the reception of your newfound faith in the Messiah everything you dreamed it would be with family and uh, those in the Jewish community? Well, I was not excited to tell my parents about my faith because I knew that they would have a bad reaction. Action was, Jesus isn't for me. There wasn't just one time, but a number of times in high school where I was approached with the gospel, I think. The, that the foreman at the job that I told you about too tried to get me to pray with him. And my response was, I'm Jewish and we don't believe in Jesus. And again, I always received an apology. So I knew my parents were going to be unhappy about this. 
again, because my identity and their identity was rooted in the survival of the Jewish people, not about God, God, but the survival of the Jewish people were born Jews, will die Jews. My father was a self-proclaimed agnostic, if not atheist. He went back and forth between atheism and and uh, agnostic, but being Jewish was important to him. Actually, he was raised in an Orthodox home. Uh, I later found out, but uh, it was important, and I so I, I I really hesitated to tell them, and it took me about uh, six or eight months before I actually sat down with them and told them, and their response was beyond what I had expected. They not only were negative, but my mother in particular was, uh, went through a whole gamut of emotions from, uh, anger to, uh, uh, remorse to confusion. It was, it was just a very, very difficult time for both of them. They felt like they had failed as Jewish parents to, to now that their boy has converted to another religion and, they asked me to do two things. They asked me to uh, meet with a rabbi and to meet with a non-sectarian counselor. Uh, they really felt they had to correct this. And I agreed to both, honor your mother and father. And they're, fun, they're interesting stories I, that I, I don't know if you want to get into, but I'll just say that the rabbi was very patient, but very negative, wrote me up a follow-up letter that I still keep that basically said you're aiding the Nazis. What they failed to do physically by destroying the Jewish people, you're helping them to accomplish spiritually by destroying our people. And really uh, hurt hurt me. It was very painful for me to have the rabbi reject me like that. And my, my f- family friends, very uh, negative and very hurt. And uh, I felt a lot of guilt. I, f- I felt a lot of rejection. Went to the, I'll just say quickly, I went to the non-sectarian counselor and also very uh, compassionate, listened to my story, and then started trying to redirect me back. And she got fed up when I gave her homework assignments to read Isaiah 53 and other prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures that talk, that I think point to Jesus and uh, told my mother on the phone in front of me, I'm not going to meet with him anymore. I was a budding evangelist. I was already familiar with the messianic prophecies, so many of them, and uh, committed to sharing my faith. But it was a very difficult time. Uh, Again, I went through a lot of rejection and a crisis of faith that I had to pray through. And uh, finally, God answered, and and I got through it. Uh, God really spoke to me uh, with a Bible verse where, uh, it says you are running well, the people that hinder you are not from me. It was an amazing time. I think I fasted for two days and a a Bible verse came into my mind from Galatians and that I opened the Bible and it said, those who are hindering you are not from me. You, you found the way and that got me through it. But it was a, a very difficult time, and it's it's a challenging thing. People need to understand it's a, it's a challenging thing to share the gospel with Jewish people because of this 2,000-year history and commitment on the part of the rabbis. Jesus is not our Messiah, and you're leaving the fold. So I hear from Catholics that they go through a similar experience. You're leaving the fold. For Judaism, it's a rejection of of a commitment to preserve the Jewish people by not believing in Jesus. And if you, again, if you understand the history, which I've already talked about, you understand why this is so deeply entrenched with Jewish people that have some Jewish upbringing. So at this point, Jonathan, you know, you've, you've accepted Jesus, your, your family doesn't understand, your rabbi doesn't understand. Um, I know that somewhere in your faith story, you start a messianic congregation. So tell us how you went from this place to starting a messianic congregation. And then also, why didn't you just join a church? Well, I did initially because I didn't know that there were other Jewish people that believed in Jesus. And then I heard about a group in Buffalo uh, called Brith Hadashah, which is the New Covenant. 
and I started to connect with them. And uh, I, I think fairly early on, certainly after I told my parents and the Lord showed me that I was on the right path, I had this growing sense, I'm really called to do this. I'm, I'm called to my own people. I, I understood at this point that Jesus was Jewish. This is, this is the destiny of the Jewish people, that I found my destiny. And I felt more and more, I'm, this is my calling, especially as I got involved with the Messianic congregation uh, and met other Jewish believers in Jesus. And it became very clear to me. In fact, it became so clear that I began to run again because I didn't want to abandon all the goals that I had worked so hard for since I was a, a child, which was to be a successful businessman. I had already completed two years of business administration, and now this meant a complete uh, change, just uprooting me. And finally, I gave in and I said, Lord, I will serve you. I will do whatever you call me to do. And I actually, after th now three years of business, I actually changed my major and pursued a, a degree through humanities in Jewish studies and early Christianity. And uh, as I continued to grow in my faith and in the congregation, the Messianic congregation, I thought I was called to lead that congregation at some point, and those doors didn't open. And then I came back to Rochester to visit. I was now 23, and uh, I'm visiting my parents, and I heard about a little group, a little fellowship that got together on Friday night. Six people were there. I decided to go, and there were six people there, a uh, little messianic fellowship. And God spoke to me. I, I actually had a vision. I, I can only describe it as a vision. My eyes were closed, and I have kind of was taken into this picture of this whole room being filled. It was a youth chapel in a church, sat about 400 people, a round room. And I knew that night, I was up all night, and I knew by morning that God was calling me to move back to Rochester and to start a Messianic congregation. And I started it the year later. In 1984, I moved back to Rochester and started congregation Shema Israel. Shema Israel is the confession of our faith that that hear, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And uh, I did that for nine years. But it was a supernatural moment where I knew that I knew that that was what God was calling me to do. So I think I just connected this right now that the name of that messianic congregation was Hero Israel because I think that the next thing you did you can tell me is you started Hero Israel Ministries, right? I started Hero Israel Ministries as an administrative, uh, as, as a 501c3 to channel funds. Because when I started the congregation, I had nothing. I just had a few friends that believed in me and the call of God on my life, and they helped me out. And then Hero Israel Ministries became a very small uh, ministry that I raised money to hire someone to do college outreach. But then after the congregation really took off, we bought a building and began to flourish. Hero Israel became, it just uh, went into stasis. It wasn't, it, it was remained a 501c3, but without any uh, activity until 1993, uh, actually 1992, the later part of 1992, after I uh, had been traveling back and forth to Russia and God, in the same way he clearly called me to Rochester. He was now calling me to Russia. And I reactivated Hero Israel Ministries to hold, to raise money, to hold a festival, an outreach festival in St. Petersburg. So it was a ministry that started in 1984, but really became very active in 1993 and became the 501c3 that uh, channeled funds for the work in Russia. So at some point, you left the Messianic congregation and moved to Russia with this goal of creating these festivals. And was this all about your Jewish calling at that point? It was. I didn't expect to be to, to leave the congregation. I thought that I'd be leading the congregation and would do these uh, outreaches in Russia as part of my missions work through the congregation. But 
the festival was so huge in May of 1993, the festival in St. Petersburg, the, the first one that I organized was so big, we ended up with thousands of people to follow up. We had over 13,000 come, totally unexpected, over 3,000, almost 4,000 Jewish people to follow up. And I was praying for somebody to move to Russia to lead this new group because there was clearly a congregation that was to be birthed out of this and nobody showed up, nobody uh, came forward. And then I was looking in the mirror one day and the Lord said, you're looking at the one that uh, I've called to do this. So I made plans to transition after putting up a bit of a fight. And by this time, the congregation was quite strong. We had an associate Messianic rabbi, and I turned over the congregation and uh, moved to Russia after the summer of 1993. And in October began the Messianic Center of St. Petersburg, Russia. So that's how I ended up in Russia. It was totally unexpected. I ended up living there from 93 to 97, and it was an incredible experience. We traveled all over the former Soviet Union, holding festivals. By 1995, we were in football stadiums, filling football stadiums with predominantly Jewish audiences, sharing the gospel and planting these congregations of Jewish people who believed in Jesus. It was an amazing time. Yeah, the the stories about the festivals are amazing. So you were only in Russia for four years, 1993 to 1997, right? So at some point, did you feel called to come back to the United States? I knew I had to come back to the United States. Firstly, the outreaches were really running smoothly with an, with a staff in Russia, and a, a, a national staff made up of, of Russian speakers. We had leaders that were taking over congregations, and the funding was, until that time, provided by just a few individuals that were major, major donors. And at, one of them passed away. One of them began to cut back on their, their giving. And I knew that I had to move back to the States and build the ministry just because there had, we needed funds. And so I, I'm, I moved back to the States and I continued to travel back and forth to Russia and other former Soviet countries because we continued to do festivals, 98, 99. And then in 2000, we began to work in South America. We did grow the ministry, but then another opportunity opened up out of nowhere. And that was an invitation to commonly Jewish voice. So we relocated from Rochester to Jacksonville. And then in 1998, the founder and president of Jewish Voice, Lewis Kaplan, uh, suffered a stroke, a debilitating stroke. I had already been a member of the board, and they asked me to take more of the oversight of the ministry, uh, which I agreed to do on and off. That was also a factor in, in staying in the U.S., and I began to travel back and forth between Jacksonville and Phoenix. And then um, they asked me to take over the ministry, and I felt that that was what God had called me to do. The relationship with Jewish Voice was already very strong as a board member and because they had been covering the festivals. And so it was really a, a synergism. We had the festivals that became kind of the centerpiece of Jewish Voice, and Jewish Voice had the media presence through radio and television, and we just merged the ministries in 2000. I moved in 99. We merged the ministries in 2000, and in 2001, we decided to rename the ministry from Jewish Voice Broadcasts to Jewish Voice Ministries International. So Hero Israel Ministries International, Jewish Voice Broadcasts, we uh, renamed the ministry Jewish Voice Ministries International and uh, we've been growing ever since. It's been an amazing time. We've had new doors open for us. We, we've continued to work in South America, and then the doors open to work in Ethiopia, believe it or not. That, and that was just at the time when it was becoming harder and harder to do these large events in the former Soviet Union. And we've been working in Ethiopia since 2000 now. You know, our audience is listening to you. Okay, North America, good. Former Soviet Union, yep. South America, yeah, I've heard of the Argentine a Jewish community. You know, and then I can hear the record scratch for people. Wait a minute, Ethiopia, now we switched continents. What has Africa to do with Jewish ministry? And we're going to talk about that in segment two of 
Jonathan Burness's story. And as you said, now we've been working over two decades there. By the way, just for our listening audience before, uh, before we conclude this segment, we have a great way for you to get involved, and it's as simple as sending a text message. If you want to know more about what's happening with the Jew and a Gentile Discuss, you want to kind of be on the inside track of some information beyond what you're hearing on these podcast episodes, we want to get you involved. And it's as simple as this, texting JG, like Jew and Gentile, text JG to 474747. Just for texting us, you're going to be entered in a drawing to win some Ethiopian coffee for free from an area near and dear to our hearts, uh, the Ethiopian Jewish community. Well, what on earth is the Ethiopian Jewish community? More on that in segment two. But again, if you want to get more involved, um, hear uh, some great information beyond what you're hearing on these podcast episodes, text JG to 474747, enter in the drawing to win some coffee. Jonathan, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ezra. To our audience, thanks so much for listening. I hope that you learned something, got something out of Jonathan's story. Just a reminder that this podcast is fully listener supported. Uh, If you like what you hear and the content is something that you enjoy, you can give us a gift to continue supporting us. You can do that at ajewandagentiledisgust.org. Just something as small as $10, a one-time gift, or you can join our our monthly after show club where you can get behind the scenes information, um, more videos and audio content than you hear on this podcast, as well as we have the opportunity to send you some of our Ethiopian coffee from uh, one of the countries that we travel to, to do ministry. Uh, So if you give at that higher monthly level, uh, you can receive that as often as you'd like uh, right to your door. So again, more information at a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. If you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love if you leave us a review, share this podcast with someone you know. You can also follow us on social media at the handle A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. Uh, leave any questions or comments you have, and we'll be sure to answer them on the podcast. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. This show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International. 